All right, we're going to play a game of guess the subject. Okay? Proverbs 27:16. He who would restrain her restrains the wind and grasps oil with his right hand. Who is the her? He who would restrain her restrains the wind. Very poetic way of saying good luck with that. Who's the her? No idea. I, I, I don't think I'd get it either. But Verse 15. A constant dripping on a day of steady rain and a contentious woman are alike. <laughs> the drip, drip, drip of the contentious woman. He who would restrain her restrains the wind and grass oil with his right hand. Yeah, I'm not picking on women. I know it would be, be you guys here today. But um, I'm using this in light of that theme of trying to restrain the wind. Um, there are a lot of things in our lives that we have absolutely no control over. There are a lot of things in our lives that we are compelled to do uh, that we would prefer not to. And those situations are things uh, we can't stop. And a lot of them occur to us because, or happen to us because of the actions of other people. And there's nothing we can do about it. So some try and use their human strength to put a stop to those things. In other words, to control their lives. And uh, God is going to show us here today that that is impossible. So you better learn how to deal with it. Whether it's a contentious woman, a contentious man, a contentious boss a contentious bank account, or whatever it may be. So we're actually going to start in 2 Corinthians 11. I uh, made the error, an error I'm trying to correct, uh, yesterday where I tried to squeeze too much material into one class. So today is really going to be part two because the information is too important to leave. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm working on it. We're going to do better at... Uh, making sure we don't try and jam too much into a session. So let's open up in prayer and be thankful and grateful <coughs> for our Lord who makes us strong. He came into the world to make us strong in His strength, uh, thanks to His sacrifice and uh, with our humility and reverence. Let's, pr- let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for our time to be with you and your word. Thank you for the instruction of your word. There's many aspects to the Christian way of life, and this is one of the most important ones, is our study. Of course, our study means nothing without application, and we know that. We have to apply and live what we learn. But we sit before you at this time, Father, as your students, as humble children, who seek your guidance by your spirit from your word. We are so grateful that you have revealed to us the testing of our Lord so that we know, uh, like he did, that we are going to be compelled to face tests. There's no way to get around them. And so we thank you, Father, for um, having us deal with them and giving us the insight in how to do that in a way that is um, wonderful, righteous, holy, uh, <clears throat> and also glorifies you. We ask these things, or thank you for these things, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. 
So the idea here of what we're gleaning from this uh, part of our passage, uh, main passage in Matthew, that the Holy Spirit is leading Jesus Christ into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. And so this uh, testing that occurs to him uh, before he is tested by the devil, he is put in a situation where he can't eat for 40 days. Now, he can eat as Satan tempts him with. He, He can conjure up any kind of food that he wants. Uh, but he will not, because it's not a part of the Father's will that he do so. Uh, This is in light of Israel, who also got hungry in the wilderness and complained about it. And uh, he's not going to complain about it. So he is going to be hungry, as in he is, or he was. And so what he reveals to us here is, on top of the fact that God the Son who is the almighty, magnificent one, uh, would condescend to become a man and then therefore limit himself to becoming tired, becoming uh, sorrowful, uh, becoming hungry, becoming thirsty. Remember, on the cross, he says, I thirst. Uh, He puts himself in a weakened position. On top of that, he allows himself to go through tests that further weaken him, which in this case is being hungry for 40 days. And there's no mistaking, or it's not, it's not just Christ showing off, saying, well, look, look how awesome I am. Look how enduring I am. He's doing this as he did everything for our benefit and to the glory of the Father. He never, it's more amazing to think of the fact that our Lord never thought to glorify himself, not once. Not once. He even said it. He said, if I give myself glory, what is that? He says, my glory comes from the Father. So he never sought to glorify himself, even though he has all the miraculous power at his fingertips. We should remember that as best that we can. So the thing that we get from this, from his hunger, in fact, something that we could skip over too quickly, is that the weak are strong when they recognize, first and foremost, that humanity is weak. I think this is of great importance, that we understand that all human beings are weak. Often we can look at ourselves and our own weaknesses. Not often. This is what everybody does. We see ourselves in light of others, uh, and we often either look at others who are weaker than us and... Uh, exalt ourselves, or we look at others who are stronger than us and we put ourselves down. And we're very oftentimes unjust to ourselves. And I think if you elevate yourself, you're just as unjust or unjust as when you put yourself down. All of us are weak. And the differences that we have in terms of human strength, in terms of like physical strength or intelligence or looks or money, or influence are, you know, all within a very narrow window of the earth. I mean, compared to the angels and God, nobody down here is rich. <laughs> right? We see billionaires. The people are almost trillionaires now. And I say that's just so much money. But compared to God, how much money is that? It's like some one kid saying, well, I've got five cents and I'm way richer than you because you only have two cents. And uh, 
You know, it's just ridiculous. So this is what we have to recognize. All humanity is weak, and we are in like kind. We're in step with all of humanity. And so I should never look to myself for strength. It was never there to begin with. It never will be there. If I, if I do stuff, will my human strength arise? No. No. I mean, again, if you compare yourself to other people, sure. But you're comparing the smallest thing to something that's minutely smaller. Like, it's, it's a stupid thing to do. Human strength is an oxymoron. It's not a reality. It's like jumbo shrimp or army intelligence, right? So uh, we first recognize that humanity is weak, and yet when we are strong, and we will be, it's not us, it's God's strength flowing through those who trust and obey his will. And in lockstep with Christ, who uses the word of God to defeat his foe, we, we find God's will and find the things that we are to trust in his word. There's no other, word, there's no other place to find them. Now, Paul highlights his own weakness in order to teach us this very lesson. He is, Paul, uh, perhaps one of the stronger men to have lived. He's well-educated. He's very forceful. He's a forceful personality. Nobody becomes a great Pharisee in Israel in his day without being a strong-willed man and very smart. So, Compared to most, he is strong, but in no way does he use his strengths. And he reveals to us that he learned to do that with a lot of God's help. Now, while we do this study, we want to answer, or at least as we do today, we want to answer how Christ, who is inherently not weak, if all humanity is weak, Jesus is not. Because he's God, he's omni-strength or omnipotent, but he decides to follow the same pattern of weakness, and we want to know why he does that. So look at 2 Corinthians 11.30. So where Paul boasts, and he uses the word boast a lot in this passage in chapter 11 and 12. If I have to boast, I will boast in what pertains to my weakness. And then he further says, God is my witness. I am not lying. If I have to boast, I will boast in what pertains to my weakness. Now, what this boasting and weakness has been the theme of this chapter. And so this uh, passage, I will boast in my weakness, it summarizes what came before. And it teaches us what he really means to say and what comes up in chapter 12. So it's a summary of chapter 11. And it's an interpretation of what is to come in chapter 12. All are weak. All are dependent upon God. And all of us are so weak that we can be deceived by the craftiness of the devil. And he used that back in verse 3 and 11.3 of Eve, who, remember, is, the strong, is, is a very strong in her perfect body before fallen, And yet she turns out to be weak as well. She's deceived and she eats of the fruit. And he makes a point of that. So Paul says, if I'm going to boast about anything, prior he said, I'm going to boast about Christ. And I'm going to boast about, if it comes to me, the only thing I'm going to speak about with me 
is that I'm weak. I can do nothing. The things you see me do that are good, the things you see in me that you may admire, the things that what you're seeing is Christ and not me. I mean, it is me. Don't think that you completely lose your identity, but it is me allowing through faith, through trust, through obedience, allowing Jesus Christ to manifest himself in me. He does so in my thoughts, in my soul, in my heart, in the work that I do. I am always looking to his will to live in every aspect of my life because it is, I have discovered, it is the only life. I'm not saying me, I'm saying anybody who matures comes to understand that. And then they trust God for everything. And believe me, if you trust God, you know in your heart that God can do everything. You depend upon him for everything. If you think, you know, he's not going to do that, and there are things that God is not going to do, right? Not that he can't do them. He's not going to do them. He's not going to sin, and he's not going to lead you into sin. But if you say thing, we say things like, you know, I, I think I have my own happiness in mind. I don't think God's going to give me that. And so I've got to go find my own happiness. Then you're on your own. And you're on human strength. That's the gas that you're running on is human strength. And it's not going to work. And everybody finds this out eventually. Uh, if I trust God for everything, God is going to make me happy. God is going to fulfill my life. God is going to make a, my life a very real purpose. God is going to give me exceeding abundantly beyond all I, I could even imagine. Then you put your trust in him when you start believing those things. So Paul has suffered, as we saw in this passage, quite a bit. In chapter 11, he's been beaten, he's been whipped, he's been persecuted, he's been mocked, he's gone without food, he's gone without shelter, he's been stranded at sea. And on top of all of that, God gives him a thorn in his flesh, which God doesn't give it to him. God allows a messenger of Satan to give it to him. And it is because, as Paul says here, so that he wouldn't exalt himself. Now, before we read that sentence, which I think you know well, I want to ask this question. Could Christ have exalted himself? Turn these stones into bread. He says no. Could he have exalted himself? Well, absolutely he could have. If he wanted to, he could have. And so, remember, he's tempted in all things as we are yet without sin, Hebrews 4. And if Christ exalts himself, he's going to show his deity. Now, if he shows his deity... Now, was there ever a time in the ministry, the first advent of Christ, when he was here during his ministry, that he showed, revealed, that it was the will of the Father for him to reveal his deity? And there was one time that he was allowed to do that. He did it. Some people saw it. And that was the last of it. Until he returns, no one's going to see him like that ever again. Uh, any idea? The uh, trans Mount of Transfiguration. He really takes, as some have put it, and I really, I don't know if this is accurate or not, but I, I love the idea of this interpretation that he, he took off the cloak of his humanity and revealed his deity. It says in the description of him, 
is in at the Mount of Transfiguration is just like the description of God in Revelation and in Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, yeah, with this brilliant white face and brilliant white clothes that matches exactly with God. You know, and interestingly enough, Peter, well, who sees that? Peter, you know, who's always recognizing when no one's talking that he should probably say something. And he says another thing that's stupid. He says, should we build three tabernacles for you, Moses and Elijah? Because they see Moses and Elijah. And that actually fits with something we'll see coming up. So, could Christ have exalted himself? Yeah, he's tempted. But unlike us, Paul, I would say confidently, didn't need a thorn in the flesh to teach him that. So Christ, because of who he is, has this humility. He doesn't really need a thorn in the flesh, but Paul does. And if Paul does, you do. And I do. And I don't know if we can identify it, but just know this. God is going to probably, I can only say probably here, because I don't know if I have passages for this, but I'm pretty confident in the fact that God's going to put things in our lives that are going to be like this thorn. it It doesn't necessarily have to be there, but in fact it does necessarily have to be there because that thing, or multiple things, it doesn't have to be one thing, those things are showing us that we're weak. So no matter how much doctrine you have in your heart, you're still a human being and equals weakness. All human beings are. No matter how mature you've gotten, no matter how awesome your prayer life has become, no matter how much of the scripture you understand, no matter how much work you've actually plugged into in serving the body of Christ and serving the church, you're still a weak pup. Sorry, Sonny. He's sitting right there. So look at 2 Corinthians 12, 7. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Messenger, angelos, Greek word, could be an angel. Angel or messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. So I think it speaks for itself. That God allowed this so that Paul... Even though he has suffered so much for the cause of Christ, he needed a little extra. And I think we all do. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. I find this wonderful that Paul prayed three times. I I find it wonderful that it only took three times for him to stop praying about it. I think it means that Paul's prayer life was so strong at that point that when he heard three no's, he was like, okay, I get it. I'll pray a hundred times. He'll be like, come on, you must not have heard me the first 99. Let's get rid of this, you know. But anyway, he says that, and he has said to me again in the perfect tense, this verb means that God told him this in the past. And it also means that God is still telling him this. So it doesn't necessarily mean that he's, he is remembering, but he's also, it's also being confirmed currently, this statement. And this statement is, you know, it, it's one of those themes of Christianity. Because think of the word sufficient. Sufficient means 
satiated. I'm full. I'm, I'm okay. And this really gets to the heart of trial. Because what trial says to me is, oh my God, I need fill in the blank. I need it to go away. Or I need something to stop it. Or I need, I need, I need. And if you need, then you're not sufficient. But he says, or God says, my grace, which is my bestowed favor on you, is sufficient for you. And, and that, that is a thought right there. Your grace, what you give and have given, is enough. All right? I mean, think of the... That lifts every burden off your shoulders. It, it should give you joy. And then, for power is matured or perfected in weakness. So, why is power perfected in weakness? Not, it is by weakness. That would be a wrong translation. This is preposition N. N means in. And so, in the sphere of weakness, power of God is matured. <clears throat> but everybody's weak, so everybody should be mature. Not everybody recognizes that they're weak. Only Christians do. Unbelievers, though they may say that whatever they say about being weak or as you know, the phrase everybody's human, everybody believes that and understands that. But in their depth, depth of their heart, without giving their lives to Christ, how do they think they're weak? I mean, weakness here would be defined by the fact that I am a sinner on my way to hell. I deserve judgment. That's weakness. So as a believer, the reason why power is perfected in weakness is that when I understand that I can do nothing and yet I still live, that the things that I do, I do dependent upon the Lord and His Word. Like if I can say I can do nothing and yet I can stand up here and give you a message and I truly believe that I can do nothing, then that's God doing it. And so I gain strength or strength really flows through me. Anything, anyone who does anything based upon the power of the Lord is someone who understands that within and of themselves they can't do it. And so as you do this year after year after year with many floppings on your face along the way, and just when arrogance or pride creeps in and sin creeps in, and you actually thought you could do it on your own and you didn't give credit to God in your heart. There was a lot of those. But as you picked yourself back up and kept going in the fact that I am weak and God has to do this, and therefore I have to follow His will and His word and His way, guess what happens to your level of strength in you? It increases quite rapidly, in fact. Because how powerful is God? That we can't even comprehend how strong, how holy, how pure. We, we can't even remotely comprehend it. So, Paul says this amazing statement, which in everyone in the world would uh, think this is um, a reason for sorrow. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast or glory in my weaknesses. Nobody, you don't glory in your weaknesses. Only insane people do that. But yet he does. Why is that? Because of this principle. So that's why if you go, but this hinge in this 
passage from between chapter 11 and chapter 12 is 11.30, where Paul says, if I have to boast, I'll boast in what pertains to my weakness. I can do nothing here. And God has shown me that. But, so see, so the, the interpretation, I'm weak, so I can't do anything. That's not it. You, you, you got the first part right, and you messed up the second part. Or, <clears throat> I'm weak, so there's no point in trying to do anything. You got the first part, you messed up the second part. I'm weak, and I can do God's will. So, getting back to our idea, oh, it's still up there. The weak are strong when they recognize that they're weak. All humanity is weak, and that God's strength flows through them when they trust and obey his will. And what will God do with your life? Because God is not passive only. In, in a way, he is. Resp- <coughs> this is. I have to be careful about this. Eh, what the heck. God waiting for your faithfulness, waiting for your faith so that he can work in your life. Think about it. I mean, as the power of the Spirit flows through me, it's only going to flow through me when I humbly submit to his will. That's Philippians 2, 12, and 13. Paul says, obey, and then the power of Christ will flow through you. Obey first. So in a way, God is, we can say waiting because, you know, it's not like he's stuck in time with his holy watch just waiting for you to do something, but it's, it is dependent upon our decisions. But also, <clears throat> once you are of a humble character, then what can God do in your life? And those are the things that excite me. And here's the thing. If I say, it's marvelous. It, it, we all have to understand that if I start to learn how to do this, and your humility is going to increase with your strength. They go hand in hand. And then you can think of, you know, what are the exceeding abundant things that God does for those who love him? Not entered into the heart, mind, you know, no one's heard, no one's seen, entered into their heart the things that God has done for those who love him. So what are those things? And the beauty of this is you would say if God, whatever God does, it's going to be something. And it doesn't have to be something that I have planned. I mean, how could I possibly know? It's whatever he does, whatever he wills. But it's going to be wonderful. So, Paul expresses the power as the power of Christ. And so this last part is like this. I would rather glory or boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may spread like a tent upon me. Now, that's being a very literal translation, but I've, I've been through this before and I rechecked it. That the verb here is truly... Uh, where it says dwell, uh, dwell um, is a, a different word. It's very commonly used in the New Testament as meno. We've seen this word before. It means to dwell. But this word isn't so much dwell. It can be translated that way because if you're in a tent, you're dwelling. But this word means to spread a tent on. The preposition is on, not in. So when, even when it says dwell in me, in the Greek, that's not really a good translation. It's epi, it's on. And on like a tent. 
And the reason why I put that tent up there, as the best I could find, is that this could be a reference to, or at least we can reference it to, the, tent, the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, in the wilderness, Israel uh, built tabernacles by which they sheltered themselves from the elements. And in the Feast of Tabernacles, which was the final feast in Israel, at the end of the harvest, it was eight days long, it was a time of wonderful celebration because the harvest is over, your work is done. You're on vacation for a few months as a farmer. Uh, They would build these tabernacles as a reminder that their ancestors were in the wilderness. And they'd sit in these tabernacles and they'd feast for eight days. It was a grand, it was like camping out in the backyard and having a big feast with your family and your neighbors. It'd be super fun. And I like, you know, I liken this. If, if, you know, I understand my weakness, what really the Exodus should have done. We have to, there's no food, there's no water. We depend upon him. God didn't bring us out here to die, did he? He set us free with ten plagues and split in the Red Sea so we could come out here and die in the desert? No, doesn't make any sense. That's not our Lord. He will provide. Can I provide? Start digging a, a hole in the in the desert looking for water. You're not going to get it. No, you can't provide for yourself. You're weak. And so but this is, becomes your life. And getting back to one of my favorite passages in John 14, 23, if you love me and keep my word, I and my Father will build our home with you. With you, not in you, with you. If I understand I'm weak, The power of Christ will spread over me like a tent. It will be like my house that I live in. Everywhere I go, I'm clothed with the power of Christ. Dependent upon his word. Ready to use his word. Just like Jesus did in the wilderness. Ah, it's a beautiful passage. So, weakness. Here we are. The problem all over the world is those who think they're strong. Yeah, the rich, the powerful, the influential, the poor. If they just realized who they were before God, there'd be no problem. We'll see this when, you know, when Satan offers Jesus the kingdoms of the world. It's a, it is a temptation that Christ could, at least even for us, that Christ could rule this world. And all those people who, don't think, who think they're strong, he would crush. You know, like everybody who commits crimes, everybody who cheats, everybody who is a tyrant, all removed. If when Christ rules this world, there'll be none of that. And imagine if he ruled the world right now as a man sitting on a throne, put him in Jerusalem, and nobody gets away with a thing. Every crooked character in every government is either put in jail or executed. Just put it that way. Every poor person who cheats, robs, steals, not a drug problem, not any, all the problems are gone. And still he said no to that world. He said, that's not the world that we're building. It would be an awesome world. But he wants something better. Well, in the world that's coming, those things will be true, except with no sin at all. But this is the problem, super me. What's the issue? 
Sin is man's problem, and the way it manifests itself in its ugliest is man's pride. So, powers matured in weakness, says God. We would not say that, as I said, it's not matured by weakness. It's matured in weakness. So, humanity is weak. Few humans are strong. Very few. Uh, The mature believers are. It's understanding that you don't have the ability to do anything good and to know that, to actually know that gives you joy. You convinced within yourself, no, there's nothing in me that will do any good. Even when I think it might, it's not. So I'm going to only do God's will here. So dealing with that person, I'm going to do God's will. I mean, really, you know, what, what is this telling me to do? What what is God's will? Dealing with that situation, dealing with my money, dealing with my body, dealing with myself, what do I put into it, uh, what comes out of my mouth, all based on his will. I start thinking that I can do things on my own, then I basically take a switch and turn off God's power and turn on my own, and it's disastrous. You're weak. But it's not that you do nothing. You're weak, but you live for Christ's sake. And that's what Paul is going to say in the next sentence. Living for Christ's sake. Living for Christ's sake is, well, you've been crucified with him, haven't you? The baptism of the Holy Spirit, that doctrine. We've been crucified with Christ, buried with Christ, and resurrected with Christ. So, as he says to us, you lose your life, that you find it. It gets crucified by him, so it is lost. And you pick up your cross daily and deny yourself daily. So, you trust God. You rely on him to know what you cannot do and for him to know what you must do. You rely on God to know what you cannot do. There's things I I just can't do them. I'm I'm weak. But I know what I must do. And by the word of God and by the Holy Spirit, I know what those things are. Therefore, thinking and doing, being inspired by his will, you're strong. And that's why you can glory in your weakness. I realize I can do none none of this. I think for the first time in my life, I've understood this in 33 years of Christianity. I remember hearing decades ago in Bible class, you can't do it, God can do it. You can't do it, God can do it in various ways. And be like, well, if I can't do it, how am I doing it? In this dumb mind, I couldn't figure it out. I wasn't ready. But now I'm seeing it. I see it. And so with our Lord in the wilderness, he is hungry. So as a result of knowing my weakness and having faith, trust, and obedience is strength of a divine type. So this weakness, now we're just one quick transition into the last sentence, but before we go there, I want to turn to a psalm. And it dawned on me, because when I read this psalm a few days ago, I'm like, oh boy, it just was wonderful. And, uh, And then when I went through this study, I was like, where, what did I read? And, and I found that psalm. And it, it's to the idea 
that, you know, if we do become strong, so now I was weak, now I'm strong. This strength, what does it give me the power to do? We've already said that, to do God's will. But if I have God, some people get mixed up and and still the, the thought in their mind is, well, if I have God's power, can't I affect things like God can? No. But can I, all right, here's one. If I have God's power and I have God's, you know, I, I understand, I get it, I'm plugged into his plan, shouldn't my life be easy? Shouldn't I be able to control things a little better? No, <laughs> nothing's there. Uh, so if divine strength is available, and it is, to all those who trust God, We have to understand that it's not magic. And I I think, you know, when Satan is tempting Christ, he's basically telling him, do magic. When you do magic, you awe people. Of course, there's no real magic. I kind of get that. (laughs) Kind of. But no, I get that. But I and I love I love magic shows. If if someone's real good at it, that's just marvelous. But. You're trying to impress people. When, when you do magic, there's no moral, you know, morality behind it. And so we're not given power to move mountains, to turn water into wine. We're not, you know, convert matter. We're not given that power because for us, for Jesus, that had a moral compass behind it because he was showing who he was. But for us... It shows nothing other than self. And that's what magic is. Magic boasts the magician. We're not given magic. We're given power to do God's will. So look at Psalm 11. Beautiful. Real short. Strength of a human type, the human strength cannot do, cannot stop, cannot remove, cannot overcome anything of substance. I can't. Yeah, I could could push around somebody real weaker than me, but that's not of real substance. Yeah, I could... uh, I don't know. You know, I could do things with, uh, or per, you know, show my my mental acumen, and uh, like say, I don't know, I go to like math class in second grade, and I sit there in math class, and I answer all the questions and tell all the little kids how stupid they are. <laughs> Sounds funny, actually, but you know, that am I am I showing any strength? It's not. It's not strength. It's it's uh, because what you're doing there is of no substance. There's no substance to it. The things that are of real substance, we have no control over them whatsoever. We can't do them. We can't do them. We can't truly love somebody. That's of substance. Without God's love, we can't do it. We can pretend to in a human way, but it, it when the fire is put to that kind of love, it's going to run. Um, we can't truly be just. We can't truly be righteous. Anything of substance we can't do. 
So notice, look at Psalm 11 for the choir director, a Psalm of David. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? How can you say that? <clears throat> so notice that parallelism, right? We've seen this a little bit in Hebrew poetry. So this second line, fleeing like a bird to your mountain, is connected to the line before it. So it's not, <clears throat> you know, David, you're in danger. You should go hide. In some cases, he did. When he's in the wilderness running from Saul, he's hiding a lot, actually. But this is in reference to his refuge in the Lord. If I have refuge in the Lord and other people say, go somewhere else, your refuge is somewhere else, not in the Lord. Like that story I shared with you before when a a father said to his son who became a Christian, he said, ah, you don't need that crutch. In other words, don't flee to the Lord. Flee somewhere else. And that's what this is. The Lord is my refuge. And then someone says to him, no, go somewhere else. But David says, how can you say that? How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? Notice bird, right? The, The images are important in poetry. Weak, frail, flying away, scared bird. He says, no, how can you say that? For behold, verse 2, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. Now, nobody goes around trying to shoot anybody in the dark. Well, not back then with an arrow. You would be sure to miss. But what David wants to project here is the secrecy of those who are trying to destroy him. You know, it's dangerous. Behold, the wicked bend the bow. They're ready. They make ready their arrow upon the string and shoot in the darkness at the upright in heart, at the righteous. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And that's what made me think of this psalm. When distresses, difficulties, pressure, true pressure comes upon me, getting back to that contentious woman at the front or contentious anything, trying to control the contentious is like trying to hold back the wind or taking oil up in your hand and thinking it's not going to drift through your fingers. It's impossible. I can't stop it. I have no control. I can't control the trials that come my way. Christ is led into the wilderness and he's hungry. Unless he uses his deity, he's not in control of that. Now, he can use his deity. He chooses not to so that he'll be human. It's imperative that he's human for many reasons. I mean, he's going to be the true Israel. It has to be human. But most importantly, he's going to be our Savior. And the mediator has to be God and man. And if he starts feeding himself or, you know, in the whole, if the Holy Spirit says go into the wilderness and he goes, no, nah, I'm just as much God as you are, buddy. I ain't going. Which is true. He's a member of the Trinity. But he submits because for our sake, he's going to be 100% grade A human being. And the strength he's going to use is the same strength that's available to us. Paul says, when I'm weak, I'm strong. Jesus could say the same thing in the wilderness. 
because the way he defeats the prince of darkness, the ruler of this world, the way he defeats him is with the word of God. That's it. He puts his faith in the word of God and trusts his father. And the father will come true, come through for him and angels will minister to him, but not, not at that point. Not yet. So he waits. 100% grade A human. Because we are. It's really, uh, I mean, when you think about it, it's, and Sue, your response makes me think this, that the preciousness of it, his care for us, you know, it's one of those things that, um, you know, you, you, could, you can write down the doctrine of God's love for you and know it through and through. But there's also a time when you have to put the pen down and either in prayer or in solitude or in meditation, just think about how God loves you. Based on the truth, we're not saying throw the Bible out. I'm not being existential. In a way, I kind of am. But I think in the purely doctrinal, that is missing in their lives, in their spiritual lives. They have a, I mean, to sit in silence and contemplate God's love for you and to see its reality. It's awesome. So we're not, one more stanza here with David. David says, The Lord is in his holy temple, the Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men, meaning he sees all. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. See that? We're going to be tested. What about the wicked? Same thing. They're going to fail. Hopefully we're going to pass. The one who loves violence, his soul hates. See that? Do I have to get back at those who are evil against me? No, God's going to get them. Upon the wicked he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. So this wonderful poem has at the front line, the first line, in the Lord I take refuge. And on the last line, I will behold his face. I'm going to see him because I take refuge in him. And then someone comes along and says, why don't you go somewhere else? And David says, how can you say that? I'm going to tell you, those who forsake the Lord are going to drink out of their cup fire, brimstone, and burning wind. So, no thanks. <laughs> I'm going to stay right where I am. So, the reason why I went here, and as David says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can I do about it? If the foundations of Israel are destroyed... David ain't going to save it. Nobody's going to save it. If the foundations of anything are destroyed, I can't stop it. Same thing with America and stuff going on here. We can do the best that we can, but am I, are we going to stop the destruction of this nation? Not when, you know, I'll count out the kids. Let's say not when 150 million or 200 million people reject God. There's nothing we're going to be able to do about that but be witnesses to our neighbors. We can do that. So when the Lord, we take refuge.
Now, as we close, truly, I've learned my lesson. Hopefully, I'm not going to squeeze in a whole bunch of stuff at the end here, except for four Greek words. <laughs> that is squeezing. But I just I put these up so that because you can kind of get used to your translation. But back in Second Corinthians twelve ten now, Second Corinthians twelve ten. Back to our passage. Paul says, "Then I'm well content." After all this, he says, "I'm well content." And these things he says are in my life. Now, I just put the Greek words up. I, I guess I could have left them out. But I guess it's my way of showing you that the research has been done in that where you see insults is the word. By the way, it's great, isn't it? You know this. It's an English word, hubris. And it means that you're proud and you do proud things. Uh, and that's what it is. It's right from the Greek word. But it means mistreatment. Insults, because say you're not insulted by people. People here in America are generally nice, unless you're like at an Antifa riot or something. No one's going to shout obscenities in your face. But, um, you know, mistreatment, though. So uh, I think insult for hubris is a little too narrow. It can include that. Uh, It means to be shamed by someone. Paul's going to be called a liar. Paul's going to be called... uh, uh, crazy. Jesus was called a drunkard. And those are insults, but it's also someone trying to shame you. Paul said, I got those. Distresses is anagke, which means, this is the one I started with, that trying to restrain the wind. This word means compulsion. Oftentimes translated in the New Testament as necessity. I'm forced to go where I don't want to go. So remember Jesus said, if someone takes you a mile, go two. Yeah, there it is. If I'm, if someone forced, now, whether it's a mile, you know, it's not really a distance. It's just that in the situations of life, because of the pressures of life, I'm forced to deal with things and deal with people that I'd rather not. And so I could ignore them. See, human power says, I knew a person once who had an assistant and he used his assistant to do everything for him. In other words, if there was a problem with anything, he'd tell the assistant, go handle that. My kids are in trouble. Go handle that. Uh, you know, whatever. The assistant was always there. <laughs> and wouldn't that be wonderful? But then again, would it be? It's not really good for your spiritual life. If you can just pick up your phone and say, take care of that, you know, just text. <laughs> it's like texting God saying, please go discipline my children or whatever. Anyway, compulsion. Prosecutions is diagmas. It means oppression. Difficulties, stenocopia. Sounds like cornucopia. And that, that last O is an omega, so it has that long O sound. Stenocopia. Right, and that, that's like a Greek dish. What am I thinking of? Am I thinking of panacopia? <laughs> it's really good, whatever it is. But this isn't good. This is difficulties. It's a set of distressful circumstances. The reason why I give these to you is just to give you slightly different definitions, but also to say, can you stop this? You know, if I have enough money, 
when the problems come, I'm going to pay, you know, does Bezos and all those other guys, how do they handle their problems? Do they throw money on it? Probably. I don't know. I don't know them. Does this Bill Gates say, you know, what would God do in this situation? <laughs> or does he have an assistant and he's got money? And they said, don't bother me with any of those things. You know? But that's not real life. Real life is this. And Paul says, guess what? I love him. Oh, what? He should be pitied. But no, he says, no, no, don't pity me. He says, for Christ's sake, I'm pleased with them. Now, th- this is important. I, I, again, I wrap here. He's not saying that I suffer for Christ's sake. Do you get that? Because there's a lot of people who say that. Oh, are you, why are you suffering? Oh, this is for Jesus I'm suffering. This is for Jesus. It's for Christ's sake I'm suffering. No, no. For Christ's sake you live. For Christ's sake you overcome. These things get in the way. This means that I don't need I don't need these things to glorify God. They're here anyway. If I didn't get any of that, I'd still glorify God by following His Word and His will and His way, by worshiping Him. I would glorify Him. But these things get in the way and try to stop me. Just like It's like saying Christ needed Satan to glorify God. Did He need Satan? Oh, heck no. But Satan tried to get in the way. And Jesus said, get out of the way. He tells him, hupage, be gone. Satana. <clears throat> These things get in the way. They're like obstacles. They're not. This is these things. You're not suffering for Jesus. You're suffering as you worship Him. And yes, God is going to allow them because we also need them. We we know that we don't grow spiritually without them. That would be wonderful if we did, but we don't. So they're necessary, true, but they're really things that are in the way. Everybody in the world experiences these. I mean, who hasn't been mistreated, unbelievers included, or compulsed to do things that they don't want to do, or oppressed, or handled stress? Everybody has. So the only re- what Christ's sake, Christ's sake means here is that despite these things, Paul is going to do God's will. I can't, I can't control them. I can't stop them. I can't stop the hubris of other people or the compulsion of life. I can't. It's, you know, it's really Ecclesiastes. It's beautiful how Paul, Solomon puts this. That I can't. Life is a fleeting wind, as Solomon puts it. I can't, I can't grasp it or control it at all. So my weakness says I better I can't control these and I'm not going to try. My strength says I live for Christ. So that's how weak and strong actually work. And Jesus would say for this reason I say to you don't be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink. Nor for your body as to what you'll put on. 
Life is more than food. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the guidance of your word and for the encouragement that comes from such passages to know what it means to be weak and at the same time strong. It's so easy to confuse them, and yet by your word, Father, you make this super clear so that we may live appropriately. And we thank you, Father, so much. In Christ's name, amen.